Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. We're broadcasting across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in California, right in the center of Silicon Beach. And Silicon Beach is the third most important center in the world for entrepreneurs, incubators, and accelerators. From um, Santa Monica right the way down to Venice Beach, it seems that every office and every building is occupied by startups and accelerators and incubators. It's amazing. And three or four years ago, there was very little. Now it's wall-to-wall nerds, I guess. I'd like to talk to you about some um, cybersecurity misconceptions. We read every day, I hear every day about um, hacking and not only hacking of governments and hacking of major corporations, but hacking of small corp- small businesses as well. And there are a lot of misconceptions about cybersecurity, so I'd just like to tackle a couple of them. Firstly, software will protect you. That's what a lot of people believe, but the reality is it is not true. Um, software alone is not even going to begin to stop cybercrime. A software update is absolutely no protection. So don't go doing whatever you want to do on your computers or smartphones and think that you're safe. You're not. Now, software often contains damage, but it doesn't stop an attack. The false sense of security brought about by believing that software can protect you from the daily mutating, highly sophisticated attacks is very dangerous if you've got a false sense of security about something you've uploaded get it out of your head because it's not going to prevent an attack now cybercrime this is another misconception cybercrime is mostly about credit card fraud a lot of people that i speak to say oh you know but most um cybercrime it's, it's all credit card stuff well this is a misconception that ironically, can lead to credit card fraud and other forms of credit-related crimes. It is just not true. By far, the majority of cybercrime is focused on grabbing colossal amounts of personal identifying information from organisations that do business with millions of people like the banks and like organisations. Or alternatively, they steal confidential business information that can be sold to the highest bitter ransomware schemes you've probably seen a lot about ransomware talked about recently in particular they're also very very much on the rise a lot more money can be made from hacking large amounts of data than from credit pump and dump and the ways that stolen information can be used leads back to consumers and can very easily result in credit fraud since stolen data can be easily purchased by identity thieves for next to nothing on the dark web. The third misconception is that cybercrime is 
about making a buck. So the only reason these people hack into everything is to make a dollar. Well, make absolutely no mistake, there are hordes of hackers out there that are driven by ideology. They're not the least bit interested in making money. The only way they are interested in money is to make it disappear or taking down the electrical grid or, as we've seen in the last few days, rigging an election. For them, monetary reward is not a motivation unless it is needed to facilitate an attack. You know, there isn't a thing most of us can do to stop any of it from happening. In a world where the Stuxnet worm that was used to attack Iran's nuclear program is now quaint technology and detonating a hydrogen bomb would inflict less casualties than a cyber attack that shuts off the power grid, having our credit ruined by a pyjama-wearing identity thief is absolutely the least of our worries. Another misconception is that cyber criminals don't target small business. Bullshit. Yes, they do. No matter how small the enterprise, it must have serious security protocols and a meaningful cyber defence plan or you can suffer an extinction level event and potentially bring down a whole lot of other businesses with it. You know, hacking you is as easy as getting malware on a far-flung point-of-sale system and coming in the side door. They merely have to compromise a smaller HVAC vendor. I mean, it is really very, very simple. The last misconception is that there's no way to stop a cyber attack. Well... That's partly true. There's no way to stop every single cyber attack. The best way to stop many attacks is using the PEPCAC solution. That's P-E-B-C-A-K. PEPCAC stands for Problem Exists Between Chair and Keyboard. That I-E, that is you. The solution is to get everybody to do what they are supposed to do. So if you do all the things you're supposed to do, and don't open, obviously, bodgy emails and, uh, you know, take realistic safeguards, you're probably going to be in reasonably good shape. But if you are concerned that you've been a victim of identity theft, watch your credit as new accounts in your name or a sudden drop in credit scores could indicate that a fraud's occurred. I check mine about once a week. And so that the worst that can happen is that you're a week out. But I know people who have discovered that they were hacked 12 months ago and by that time a whole heap of damage has been done. Now, Google was reported this week as being hands down the best company to work for in the US. And when you hear the staff benefits, it is not at all surprising. It's actually hard to know where to start. Now, Google consistently treats its employees to parties and outings like overnight ski trips to Vermont and to the Poconos and picnics at Chelsea Piers and all sorts of activities. When was the last time your company put on a party or an outing or an overnight trip anywhere? 
top executives like Alphabet CEO Larry Page and present, President Sergey Brin, they hold forums on Fridays called TGIF where employees can ask anything, no matter how controversial, and they'll get an answer. So when was the last time that your CEO, president, managing director, stood up before all the members of the staff and took questions? Hmm, bet it doesn't happen too often. And Google employees have access to gyms and volleyball courts, bowling alleys, an outdoor sports park, an indoor rock climbing wall. And since wellness is a priority at Google, employees are encouraged to use the company's facilities to exercise. Uh, Do you know where the um, gym is in your company? Probably not. The company spends millions of dollars serving employees three gourmet meals a day. So every day, every employee, and there are, I can't remember how many, but there are tens of thousands of them, um, get three gourmet meals a day. It costs Google millions and millions of dollars to serve their employees great food. But also across the across the campus, there are also numerous cafes and there's food trucks. And there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. I mean, it's it's really quite remarkable. Google, 62,000 employees. That's how many they've got. So they feed 62,000 employees three gourmet meals a day. Sheesh. The, uh, Google, 62,000 employees make a median salary of $140,000 and employees get healthy bonuses, stock stock options, and 401k matching. And this isn't at all surprising. 86% of all Google employees say they have very high job satisfaction. In addition to this, there are all sorts of perks like massages and music lessons, and you can take your dog to the office. And It's just a never-ending stream of things that they can do, that they do to make life better for their employees and as long as employees are performing well they're able to move around within the company they can move to new teams they can move to new projects or departments easily and promotions are fair and happen regularly wow officially google staff can also spend time working on other projects that interest them that are outside of their day-to-day responsibilities One software engineer got to spend 20% of his time at Google working on the self-driving car team. Now, that'd be pretty cool. I wouldn't mind doing that. It has its own in-house tech support called TechStop, which is open 24-7 to help employees with any hardware and software issues they might have in their job. Commuting is free for Google employees at the Mountain View campus. They can ride a free shuttle bus equipped with Wi-Fi from downtown and a number of other stops to work every day. Google also helps out, this is what I like, Google also helps out families of deceased employees by immediately vesting their stock and paying the spouse, the employee's salary for 10 years, plus $1,000 a month for any child. I think that's just phenomenal. Sure, they've probably got a pretty young staff and not too many of them die, but nevertheless, 
it's a great policy. And their parental leave policy is market leading with new dads getting six weeks off while mums get four and a half months off. Now, in America, where parental leave is not something that's common, that is unbelievable. And Google's stock, Google employees' stock, continues to vest while they're on leave. Now, hopefully, Google is a blueprint for the jobs of the future. And they announced the other day, following on from Apple, that um, they are adjusting all salaries so that there is absolutely no gender difference between salaries or benefits at all. So I think there's now 20-odd companies that have signed on to that, and uh, that's a great thing. Here's another good thing. How often have you fiddled around with glad wrap and you can't, you know, you just, it sticks and you can't un- separate it and you try to wrap something, it's stuck to everything. It's a pain in the ass. So, but the days of trying to uncling cling wrap are over. A group of US scientists have developed an edible cling wrap made from milk protein and it will be on the shelves within the next couple of years. And while edible packaging is already on the market, the ones available at the moment are made from starch, which allows oxygen to seep through and doesn't protect the food very well. It's made from the, the new edible cling wrap is made from casein, which is a protein found in milk, meaning it is both biodegradable and after flavouring is added, it is also edible. The new cling film is up to 500 times more effective than current products, which are typically made from oil, so they're much, much better at keeping oxygen out of the food. The coating applications for this, they seem endless when you think about them. Think of all the things you can wrap in a cling wrap that you can eat and doesn't take away from the taste of the food. For instance, some individually wrapped cheese sticks use a large proportion of plastic, and they're another thing that's a pain in the ass to try and unwrap. But you won't have to. These um, protein-based films, powerful oxygen blockers, they help prevent food spoilage, and when in packaging, they taste okay. And they also prevent food waste along the food chain. So that's all good. Can't wait. Edible packaging. Now, Amazon's launching technical teams whose workers will only work a 30-hour week. The team's members will receive the same benefits as full-time employees, and they will receive 75% of the 40-hour workers' pay. Now, this might seem pretty adventurous, but there are currently, you know, there's only about 22 or 23 really industrialised countries in the world, and 10 of those already have a much shorter working week than the US. The Netherlands, Denmark and Sweden are all either at or experimenting with 30-hour work weeks, while the average US employee works 47 hours. So that's almost, that's more than 50% more. 
Now, the stated goal of the 30-hour week program is to create a work environment that's tailored to a reduced schedule and still fosters success and career growth. I think that's fantastic because we one of the discussions that we have a lot and probably you do too, is with all the technology replacing workers everywhere. I mean, you, you know, in, in the, reading the other day that in the old days you'd have a a, um, a car plant that had 1,500 employees. Now you've got Tesla making cars with about two people and an and a iPad. So what are you going to do with all these people that are unemployed? Well, one solution is to cut them all down to 30 hours a week so that everybody will work and 50% more people will have jobs. Now, the 30-hour um, the week, it's, it's not hard to um, think that the 30-hour week came about because of the uh, New York Times investigation into Amazon's work culture, which um, said that uh, Amazon was a merciless place to work. So one would think that this 30-hour week is um, in response to that. But this is more than just about one company's culture. The idea of a work week of 30 hours or less, it speaks to several large-scale issues around technology and employment. It increases the overall labour demand, and that will have to continue to increase as more and more people are laid off because of technology. And a 30-hour work week is seen by some as a way to more evenly distribute the shrinking pool of labour among workers and reduce the potential of automation to increase income inequality. It could also have a um, positive effect on women's employment and careers by making it easy to balance work and home and childcare. So that's another very positive attribute. Now, make sure you subscribe to my daily newsletter sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries every single day. You can read it in 30 minutes. <laughs> 30 minutes. You can read it in 30 seconds. Seconds. So it's a very quick read. It's interesting. We try to make it entertaining. And uh, it's just what every entrepreneur or business executive needs to keep up to date. On my website, bobpritchard.com, you will see a new page called the Bob Pritchard Success Pathway. And this is designed to assist international and American entrepreneurs to access information, contacts, expertise, and funding in North America. And we've established some great global partnerships, which are mentioned on the webpage. So that's at bobpritchard.com. Now, my guest today is Henry Lawson, who is co-founder and CEO of Autograph, which is a provider of user-generated profiles and the Profile Cloud Henry was previously worldwide president for Donovan Data Systems, building their transaction volume up to $85 billion a year. Henry's a pretty smart dude. Now, I'll be back with Henry immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. 
Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we interview successful entrepreneurs and people involved in disciplines that can assist us to be more effective in business. You know, people who have been successful, people who think a bit differently and have something to share with other entrepreneurs that can help us all become a bit more successful in this fast-paced technology era. In in these interviews, I try to find out what makes these successful people tick so that we can learn from their experience and from the things that make them successful. You know, it's really bloody hard to be successful in business, as shown by the fact that 99% of businesses these days fail for one reason or another. So we really need to listen to as many interviews as we can, read as many business books as we can, and as I say every week, surround yourself with mentors. It'll make a huge difference to your success rate. Now, Henry Lawson is co-founder and CEO of Autograph, provider of user-generated profiles and the Profile Cloud. Henry was previously worldwide president for Donovan Data Systems, building transaction volume to $85 billion a year. So the boy obviously knows what the hell he's talking about. So let's have a chat to him and see. Hi, Henry. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hey, Bob. Delighted to be here. First and foremost, what is Autograph? So Autograph is a new, very much a new technology business that is the next face of how consumers and businesses will work together, um, essentially where the consumer has a voice in what is interesting to them and what is the stuff that businesses should be telling them about. Um, Previously, and and I'm I'm long enough in the tooth to know that that, uh, to have been in the in the media business since the late the early nineties. Um, as we've grown up through the digital age, the issue with digital has been that we've had a huge uh, growth in transactions. It works incredibly effectively. It can deliver straight to the spot, whether it's on a mobile phone or a computer or anything else. Yep. However, the advertising and the messaging that goes alongside it is. Uh, the decision on what to serve is very much a one-sided decision. It's a decision that's made by typically a black box. And the fact that only one in 1,500 ads or messages gets clicked on 
is indicative of the fact that it is not working effectively. True. What Autograph set out to do in 2011 is to build a way in which users can actually generate their own profile and essentially sit there and say, if you've got stuff that is interesting to me based upon this anonymous profile, then send it to me. Otherwise, please leave me alone. And what we've seen over the last five years has been a huge growth in uh, businesses having to adapt to consumers being more and more conscious of what their data is getting used for, more and more conscious of a need to adapt to what the consumer is looking at. Um, and our response rates are much, much higher than the industry average, typically between six and ten times higher, and that's indicative of the success that, um, that, that comes from, from basically giving the consumer a uh, voice. So, you know, I'm, I'm conscious your show is on Voice of America. Uh, in, in many ways, you could actually sum up Autograph as being the voice of the consumer. Right. Okay. Um, how does the, um, how does your little black box get the consumer information or find out what it is that they want to know about? Well, what, what, what increasingly businesses are looking at is using what we call course filters, which is essentially saying, look, you know, here are the seven things we can tell you about. Tell us which ones are interesting and please tick the boxes. Consumers find that deeply uninteresting. Um, there's nothing intriguing about that. That's the way in which the business happens right now. The most avant-garde market is doing it. The way we do it is simply to ask people what TV programs they like, what radio programs they might like, what personalities they might like, and, and very often what brands they might like. And we are able to build a model based upon those brands, TV personalities, and so on. We're able to build a model of what that person is going to be interested in. We then feed that back to the consumer. We say, right, here is, this is the picture of you. This is your description. This is your kind of avatar. This is what you are. Is that accurate? And we confirm that's accurate. And it's only then that they opt into using that profile. So we're able to build in about 30 seconds of a consumer's time a hugely instructive uh, profile of the consumer and have the consumer sign off and opt into using it. So we end up being able to solve two problems for the marketer. You know, one is to be able to um, essentially build a profile, which is, which is a huge data science exercise, which we've been building for the last five years, right. but then to be able to actually get the trust of the consumer so the consumer says, yeah, absolutely, that's what, that, that, um, if you send me messages related to that profile, I'm very comfortable with that. The problem, of course, with the internet is that, is that so often your browsing history and your emails and all those invasive things that are used to target advertising are actually about things you don't want to know messages about. You know, it's because you bought a gift on Amazon or it's because you've actually been searching for something on behalf of someone else or it's a business-related thing. We are focused entirely upon that consumer and what that consumer is interested in. So how do you... How do you begin to build a profile? Do you just pull down big data but have a much more sophisticated set of algorithms that sort through that information or do you actually somehow have direct dialogue with a consumer? Well, so we have direct dialogue with the consumer, but the direct dialogue we have the consumer, see, if you tell me, um, if you tell me, uh, for example, you, you, you as an Australian originally, Bob, I know you've been in the US a long time, 
But if you tell me you're a Holden guy, uh, rather than being a Ford guy, then that's actually going to tell me something about you. If you then start to tell me that you wear Chanel aftershave and that you like, um, you like, uh, um, uh, Dolmio pasta sauce, (laughs) then, then I'm going to start to build a picture of you. And the clever bit, if you like, of what a autograph does is to be able to build a, 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 literally thousands of dimensions in your profile by you just telling me about 40 or so brands or TV programs or personalities that you like. Yes. Because we've built up the model. So the data science, you're absolutely right, it's about data science, but the data science has been done to be able to take a very small input from the consumer and leverage that into a huge insight that is valuable to both the consumer and to the company. Yeah, but I, I, can, I understand how that can work. So what? tell me just a little bit about your background and how um, Autograph came about. What Did you wake up 2 o'clock one morning and go, sure. aha, I've got it, Autograph? Yeah. Didn't Not work quite. Like that. These things never are. And startup, the, the <laughs> building of a startup is, is always a roller coaster journey. Sure um, is. So, I mean, my, my background is a mechanical engineer. I went to business school in the U.S. Um, and then when I left business school, I actually joined the media industry and fell in love with it. So I actually spent four years in the radio industry um, at a company called Interact, which was basically selling advertising on behalf of stations outside their local area. Okay. And got to know media and how, how radio stations, which are a superb local medium, especially in the U.S., yeah. um, <clears throat> how they target their own audiences. And learned that, and then was hired to to run Donovan um, in Europe, and then subsequently became the president worldwide. And Donovan essentially is the sort of um, SAP and Sabre. It's the background of the advertising industry, processing all those transactions. Sure. Um, and we built Donovan up very successfully. Um, and then I, I got to a point in the late two thousands um, where I said, "Hang on a minute, I've." No, uh, digital advertising basically started in 1995, and the first ads that went out in um, digital had response rates which were measured in good single and sometimes double-digit percentages. Yep. By the time we got to the mid-2000s, that number was down at 0.0-something, yes. typically about 0.065 or 7, yes. literally 1 in 1,500 ads. And I sat there looking at Donovan, looking at the money going through the Donovan system and went, this system is broken because 1,499 out of these 1,500 ads never get responded to. Only one gets responded to. Something's fundamentally broken here. And that's when I started getting into the idea of being able to, a consumer being able to broadcast what they're interested in, being able to tell a business what they're interested in in an intriguing way. You could, you could use the data to connect people with what they're interested in, but you had to get the person involved, first of all, to be able to see the, 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 the needle in the haystack of data, yep. but secondly, to be able to build a level of trust so the consumer understands it. Because so much of what goes on in the digital world is a black box about which the consumer understands either nothing or next to nothing. And we have to build more trust in the marketing industry for us to be able to, um, we've got to rebuild that trust. The trust that used to happen when you went into your local shop and they knew you. Yep. The trust that, that is established by multiple transactions. We have to rebuild that trust. 
And so we started out, essentially, I started out looking for businesses that would do that. We worked for Warbo Pincus, one of the big private equity houses, looking for businesses that satisfied that thesis of involving the consumer and found none. Right. And it's at that point that you sit there as an entrepreneur and go, okay, is this because my idea is lousy or is this because, because no one's thought of it? And we persisted and I actually found with Tom Hughesby, our chairman, and Brian Roundtree, my co-founder here up in Seattle, uh, actually found the three of us who were of like mind. Uh, but most importantly, Brian has the technical capability that I don't have right. to be able to go out and build. Uh, and, and frankly, is the ideas guy. And he's, you know, if, if, if Brian is the genius behind Autograph because he's the guy that makes what is otherwise um, uh, an, an activity that the consumer doesn't want to invest any time in, makes it intriguing enough that the consumer goes, hang on a minute, or at least three quarters of consumers turn around and say, hang on a minute, I'm quite happy to do this. Yeah. And that's the, that's the genesis of what, where we got to, where we came from. You're sort of fight, swimming against the tide a bit, aren't you? Because we're in a time when the consumer seems to be extraordinarily cynical, don't like any sort of intrusion into their lives, don't trust governments, don't trust corporations, don't trust media, don't trust anybody. Um, so does that make your life a little bit more difficult? No, on the contrary, it actually makes our life much better because, because to the extent that you see consumers, and, and I agree with that, that, that breakdown of trust, um, to the extent you can see consumers feeling that, corporations who are actually trying to sell to those consumers are trying to work out how to build back trust. They're doing that because they know it's good business. They're doing that because they know that consumers are feeling the way that you've just described. But crucially, we've also got lawmakers changing the law. In Europe, we've had very extensive European data privacy regulations enacted, which take which are which are enacted by the local governments over the next two years. Bloody and in the US, you've had you've had the FCC um, broadcasters in the US. And, and ISPs and um, internet service providers having to actually abide by a brand new set of opt-in legislation. So the legislators have followed that public opinion you just described by actually forcing businesses to, to, to abide by these principles. And of course, what Autograph has been, has, has been built is to, is to actually be at or even higher than those principles from the outset by design. Yeah, I'm one of those people who believes that government should get out of all of this stuff and let the community work it out themselves. They're pretty good at it, but once the government seems to get involved, it makes life extremely difficult, um, and particularly in Europe. The privacy laws in, in Europe, I think, are just too extreme, to, just too extreme. Um, so I'm still interested in your customer opt-in Um how do you contact the customer initially or potential customer initially? So, so we typically work in the background uh, with our clients and our clients will send out an invitation to their customer either through um, the email channel, the SMS channel, inside their applications, inside their website. So you'll cut your... And they will actually invite... Let's, let's just so our a client, be it, be it, you know, supermarket or a mobile oh, carrier or, or, okay. or shopping mall or whatever. Okay. okay. We'll send out an invitation to say, would you like to improve your experience with us today? Um, we get very high click-through rates on that invitation. 
um, you know, measured measured in in you know very very strong numbers, um, about a hundred times higher than a typical ad will actually be responded to. Um, with that, the consumer actually goes through the process of creating their autograph, and at that point, they then are they then validate that and and actually opt into using that in their future communications. Um, most often, our clients provide no incentive other than in, other than the attraction of improving the experience for the consumer. Sometimes our clients uh, actually use an incentive to do that, so they will actually turn around and say, enter a draw, or would you like to get some loyalty points, or there's all sorts of ways in which sure. they can do it. Yep. But the fundamental is that the consumer willingly participates in, in, this, um, in this process. And, and by willingly, I mean, I mean three quarters of consumers who are actually invited to participate in the process do so and create a profile that they find intriguing um, that is then valuable for the business because the business now understands what they really want and for the consumer because now they're not being bothered with stuff that's not relevant to them. And you can, of course, cross-pollinate the information that you receive from several different clients into to build people's um, profile. Very, very good. So is it... Yeah, is that more accurate than, for example, I go to the supermarket, I belong to their club, whatever club it is, and uh, they know every single thing I buy to the extent where you can be walking through the um, checkout and they say, do you need milk today, sir, because you usually buy milk. Um, is, is that more yeah. accurate than, than the profiles built by um, your actual, actual purchase patterns or is it complementary or... So the reason why the loyalty clubs that you're describing work so well is because the supermarket is one of the very few places that shoppers shop on a super regular basis. Yep. I mean, typically, I think you know, the average shopper goes to the supermarket about 30 times a year. So by doing so, they build up a very, very accurate profile regarding grocery. So we don't even attempt to tell – we have a supermarket client. Right. We don't even attempt to tell them – whether you should recommend the chocolate or the strawberry dessert to somebody. No way. Um, you know, the, the supermarket loyalty data is much, much more accurate to that because, frankly, your taste in chocolate versus strawberry desserts doesn't change very often. Yeah. Where we are able to help is in the businesses that either are new to that customer or particularly the businesses that don't have very frequent interaction with that customer. Okay. And... So, so essentially, you know, you, you, you typically go into the, into the department store a couple of times a year. Well, the loyalty program at the department store is not predictive of what you're going to buy the next time you come in. It may be, but generally it's not. But generally it's not. That's where we come in. In the case of the supermarket, supermarkets are becoming, um, you know, and, and, and we've seen this across many European countries, uh, have, uh, are becoming the one-stop shop for everything. You know, you buy your clothes there, you buy your yeah. TV there, you buy your newspapers there, you buy all these different things there. Yeah. And that extend, as they extend the range of their supermarket, their loyalty programs are not indicative of what they should be offering to whom. And that's where we come in. That's interesting. So, for example, in clothing, we're able to, we're able to predict what a given customer is going to be interested in the clothing line much, much more accurately. And I mean, I, I can't give you the numbers, but I'm talking about an order of magnitude better than their grocery loyalty program can. Because the fact that you buy chocolate rather than strawberry desserts isn't indicative 
of whether you would actually want, um, you know, short trousers, long trousers, blue ones or green ones. It yeah. just doesn't, it doesn't tell you. I can understand that. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm belying my heritage by using a word like trousers. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time, don't worry. Um, so <laughs> with regard to um, cons- a, a consumer protection data and um, the um, requirements of governments these days, how do you... How do you address that? I mean, how do you, how do you make sure that you don't get offside with some of these stupid regulations? So, um, first of all, first of all, I, I challenge you a little bit about the stupid regulations because um, actually, the consumer does need protection from the use and abuse of their data, and the surveys of consumers. Um, on both sides of the Atlantic are very, very clear that the consumer does not want their data used and misused and used by the next third party and the party after that and the party after that. It's very clear that that's the case. And so I, I, I challenge you a little bit in, in terms of just where, where consumers, um, what consumers uh, are prepared to, or at least would, would rather their data was used for. I do, I do agree with you on the... Sense on selling of data, I agree with that, but um, the collection of data, initially, forgetting on selling of data, I think that should be be, um, stopped, but um, even the collection of data in Europe now is is difficult, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's got much more difficult. So so let's look at what what, what data that, that people are really looking for. Marketers, and, and actually the marketing industry, has become very, very lazy in essentially asking the consumer right from the outset for an incredibly invasive piece of information. And that invasive piece of information is typically give us your email address or give us your phone number. Right. Now, they want that as a return path, which is fair enough, because otherwise they've got no way of getting back to the customer very often. But most importantly, they want that because that is the way in which the third-party databases are indexed. And so they want that because once you tell me what your email address is, I can go to a third-party data provider and I can get a profile on you very, very quickly. Yes. Now, that third-party profile has been resold by others further up the chain. And that third-party profile may be old, historic, accurate, or inaccurate. But whatever it is, it can't be that good because we're still getting the response rates that we've talked about. Yep. The way in which Autograph approaches this is to say, look, we don't need your phone number or your email address, any of those sensitive things. All we need is you to tell us what your preferences are. And if you think about it, you will willingly walk around with a watch with a brand on it on your wrist. You'll willingly walk around with a T-shirt supporting your favorite sports team. You'll willingly walk around, drive around in a car which is branded. You'll willingly actually express your preferences very publicly to anybody who, 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 who is actually looking. Yes. So actually preferences really, it, although it, it's, it's what is in, in Europe known as pseudonymous data, it's very much anonymous data in the US, um, that, that data is something that the consumer is quite willing to be actually out there because actually you know, your preferences are not something that's private or personal to you as it relates to brand marketing, as it relates to the kinds of things that you might buy in the store. Sure. And that's why 
we're able to actually, all we're doing is we're accruing the preferences of somebody and then using those. The only reason why, or the main reason why marketers are looking at the invasive um, uh, personally identifiable information, PII, um, is because that's what's used as the index to get preferences from a third-party provider. With Autograph, you don't need that third-party provider, and therefore we get around the whole problem of resale of data, and crucially, the, um, the use of personally identifiable data, when actually personally identifiable data is not what the marketer really needs. They just need it in order to be able to get the third-party data. So I know that's a long conundrum, but in essence, we don't need uh, you to tell us stuff that's personal to you. We just need you to tell us what you're interested in. Right. And what your preferences are. The, so then you're able to go back to, directly back to the consumer. I mean, one of the, I've said for 15 years to anybody who'll listen and everybody who pays me to talk to them that um, traditional advertising doesn't work and this is not a new phenomenon and it hasn't worked for 20 years um, and um there's nothing you can do to it to make it work. So you're you're doing one-on-one, which has always got to be mm-hmm. a hell of a lot more accurate than um, than any sort of shotgun marketing. That no matter how, how how targeted people think their general advertising is, it isn't. Yep. So we are doing exactly that. We're doing genuine one-on-one. And then we're, we're doing even better than that because when we actually send a message to a consumer, we present a message in front of the consumer, we have um, uh, a new word which is called swoting, which is, which is actually um, combining swiping and voting, but it's essentially the idea of swiping and voting on the piece of content <laughs> to say that they liked it or they didn't like it. Right. And by giving that feedback directly back to the client, back to the advertiser, we're able to build yet further the model, the autograph of the particular consumer. So by just swoting a piece of content up, it says, oh yeah, send me more like that. I'm not clicking on it, I just want, I, 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 but I did like that. I found that amusing, I found it interesting. Or swoting it down to say, please don't send me ones like that. That's not, what, that's not me. Okay. We've got a continuous feedback loop with the, with the consumer. So the consumer is, is effectively continuously improving the, uh, Updating the, 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 profile. The, the accuracy of what they're seeing. Right. Yeah. Um, so what sort of brands are, um, are utilizing your technology? What are the major brands, type of, type of brands? You don't have to give me brands. But well, because, the main, yeah, because we work in the background, um, we, 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 we're limited by, by who we can talk about, but we are actually working with one of the top three carriers in the United States um, okay. actively, yep. uh, and and actually they're building up because the carriers, are, the mobile carriers, are, are, are really interested in understanding more about their customer than just their, their sort of you know phone and and um, and so on habits. Um, so we're working very very much with them. We're working with one of the top two supermarkets in the UK um, who have. Uh, a loyalty program that's actually shared very much with a couple of supermarkets in the US. Um, but we're working with one of the big supermarkets in the UK. We also work um, with um, shopping malls. So one of our most um, prestigious uh, clients is, is Regent Street, 
Right. So Regent Street is the main kind of really fancy schmancy shopping mall, a shopping street in London. I love it. Um, owned by Her Majesty the Queen through the Crown Estate, mm. um, and is and is actively using autograph technology to be able to steer both residents as well as visitors and tourists into the right stores on Regent Street uh, with the right content, and so being able to actually help consumers to be able to navigate. You know what is otherwise 180 stores selling a whole variety of different things. So and and to the restaurants and so on in that in that environment. So we're working with them. We're also working with um, a lot of the new internet, the big internet companies, um, in helping them to be able to become much more user centric and using user generated profiles rather than um, the existing data that sits in the background as they as they've used previously. So once you get people into say Regent Street, are you um, yeah. are you tracking them? Are you um, then you know exactly where they are and what they're buying and where you can steer them? Uh, no, we don't do that. We we do not track. It's entirely anonymous. The consumer downloads the Regent Street application, <clears throat> builds their autograph in that sort of thirty second process by telling us about some brands that we present to them, whether they like them or not. They swoop those up or down. Um, and then as they walk up Regent Street, the phone is actually listening for the beacons that are actually installed in each of the sure. stores on Regent Street. Yep. And when they pass a beacon or a store with a beacon that has content that would be almost certainly of interest to that customer, and I'll come back to almost certainly, but it basically means 95% certain of being of interest to that customer, a message comes up on their phone to say, you do realize there's this new range of shoes inside, or you do realize there's these new Bose uh, headphones, or you do realize that there's these new toys at Hanley's, or you do realize that there's these things at Burberry. Um, and we're able to actually present to the customer in real time, in the physical world, the things that are relevant to them. But the most important thing, Bob, is we leave 19 out of 20 things on the shelf and do not disturb the customer. Right. And the only way you can do that is if you understand the customer well, and that's what the autograph technology does. Yeah, that's interesting because using beacons, certainly where I was walking down the street in London and uh, I got a message saying um, uh, you're just passing hot coffee and, and croissants or whatever it was. Um, why don't you pop in? So I did. Um, and... Uh, it, it's it, that sort of technology is amazing. So, are the, yeah, are the user-generated uh, profiles? The f is this the future of understanding customers? Well, well, I think it is. Um, we certainly think it is. Um, what we've what we've done is is build something which is which the customer willingly participates in. But most importantly, it removes all of that of data. It's just a great big soup of data with permissions which are either old or illicitly gained. Um, we remove that sea of data. We remove the need to use that sea of data and we build back trust between the consumer and the company. Yeah. And that breakdown of trust is the thing that's damaging digital marketing. It's the thing that, that we talk to brand managers, CMOs, um, CEOs all the time, and it's that breakdown of trust and it's that resetting of the relationship with the consumer that is what they're looking for. 
And when they see user-generated profiles and they realize that they can have a one-to-one relationship with the consumer that the consumer's actively participated in, uh, they become very, very interested in that. And crucially, the consumers become very interested in it because they find the whole process rather intriguing. So yes, we do believe it's the future. Um, the legislators, you know, uh, we, we, we've been through this a little bit, but, but the legislators very much believe, uh, are very much following the course of public opinion. Uh, they're not ahead. They're actually they're just a little bit behind. Right. And, you know, you go from anywhere from the Snowden case from a few years ago through loads of revelations around the use of data um, by all of the big internet companies. This is a this is a this is a core area where we've just got to reset the relationship, and that's what Autograph um, really helps to achieve. Autograph and, and user generated profiles help to achieve. It, it's a it's a great idea. I love it. And uh, Henry, we've run out of time, but um, Henry Lawson, thank you very much for being on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. How does anybody find out more about um, Autograph? So um, the, the best way is to go to autograph.me, our website. Um, anywhere worldwide, you can download the Regent Street application, which gives you a really good insight into uh, the way in which internet, that, that experience works on Regent Street. Whether you're in London or not doesn't matter. You can still get very much through the experience. And then on that website, autograph.me, uh, you can actually go in and you can actually try the um, try the whole process and please do send feedback to us about what your experience has been which is also an invitation that's on the website um, delighted to delighted to receive feedback um, the customers are the, are the lifeblood consumers are the lifeblood of, of autographs and, and we, we you know delighted to hear so the website is autograph.me M-E, and you're listening to the Bob Pritchard radio yep. show on the Voice America Business Network And I'll be back with you after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. We're on the Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. This week broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. Now, branding is usually associated with companies and products and organizations, but today it's more and more important for individuals to establish a personal brand. For example, in my line of work, my personal brand is really all I've got, and it's critical to my success. So we actively cultivate the Bob Pritchard brand every day in everything we do. So it is really important and there's more and more people uh, out on the web and social media with blogs and, and you know, um, 
business executives are more getting to be more and more onto the speaking circuit and all trying to build their own brand because your own brand, if it's high, will um, augur well for you for the future. Now, according to an AVG study, 92% of children under the age of two already have a digital footprint. (laughs) 92% of kids under the age of two already have a digital footprint. In fact, due to our exposure through digital media, almost everyone has the basis for their personal brand. Now, you can cultivate and fashion it to provide a powerful force for your future or don't do anything, let it deform perform haphazardly, let it be um, shaped by others and trust me, you will suffer for that. Now, how do you build your own personal brand? Well, firstly, you need to think of yourself as a brand. Disassociate the brand, what I do, we just um, disassociate the Bob Pritchard brand from Bob Pritchard the person. So you think of what do you want people to associate with you when they think of your name? Is there a certain subject matter that you want to be perceived as an expert in or are there general qualities that you want associated with your brand? Once you understand how you want people to perceive you, you can start to be much more strategic about that personal brand. And a strong personal brand, believe me, can um, yield tremendous return on investment, whether you're working with an organisation or leading one. If you've got a strong personal brand, it's fantastic. Secondly, you need to audit your online presence. Now, you can't mould perception without first understanding your current status. So Google yourself and set up alerts for your name on a regular basis. If you've got a fairly common name, then consider using your middle initial or middle name to differentiate yourself. Or, as a very successful and talented friend of ours in the music business it did, add an adjective. She added an adjective to her name and became Screamin' Rachel Kane. And that's what she's named, named as. She's in the music business. She runs a very successful studio. But... Screaming Rachel Kane sets her apart and cultivating that strong personal brand is just as much about being responsive to what's being said as it is to creating intellectual property. Thirdly, secure a personal website and having a personal website for yourself is one of the best ways to rank for your name on social engines. It doesn't need to be robust. Just be a simple two or three page site with your resume linked to your social platforms and a brief bio. You can always expand on it later. Next, find ways to produce value. Don't post utterly mundane or ridiculous crap. Find ways to add value to your audience by curating stuff that they're interested in. Another tip is to be purposeful in what you share. Every tweet you send, every status update you make, every picture you share, they all contribute to your personal brand. So your brand is an amalgamation of multiple daily actions. Another two um, things that you need to do is associate with other strong brands. 
So find other strong brands and find a way to connect with them. And lastly, reinvent. So have a very clear story and a consistent brand. And remember, a strong personal brand should be ubiquitous and ever evolving. I'll see you again next week. In the meanwhile, remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope and are not living on the edge, then you're taking up way too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. So I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It's a 30-second read, and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. And next week, I will again broadcast from my studio in Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.